On this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, we talk with Ray Cronin and Jim Butler of Club Benchmarking. Um, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Club Benchmarking has really kind of revolutionized the private club business um, by providing a range of data-centric products and services to clubs so that clubs can have the requisite facts to guide their decision-making process. And Ray, who is the founder and former CEO, kind of experienced this firsthand when he was involved in club governance at his, his own club. And that sort of led him in 2009 to found club benchmarking. And it has grown tremendously since then um, and has club clients really not just all over the U.S., but all over the world. And um, Jim Butler uh, joins us, who's the present CEO, and he and Ray talk about how not only club benchmarking came about, but the value it provides to clubs, the kind of um, mistakes that they commonly see private clubs make, and the trends and best practices they see in the industry and, and where it's going. So on this episode, up next, uh, Ray Cronin and Jim Butler of Club Benchmarking. So welcome to another edition of Larry the Golf Guy. And I'm so pleased this morning to be joined by both Ray Cronin and Jim Butler of Club Benchmarking, which um, is sort of a neat uh, company, a leader in um, helping private clubs uh, guide their decision-making process with all sorts of tools. Um, and Ray is the founder. Uh, Jim is the current CEO. And guys, thanks so much for making time today to speak to me about this. Happy to be here. So, Thank Ray, you. maybe let's get started with you. Um, so I know you're from New England, as I am. I grew up in West Hartford, uh, not too far from uh, Boston area. And um, maybe just to kind of get it rolling, uh, kind of just how did you first get introduced to the game of golf? I, uh, I grew up in Situate, Massachusetts. And uh, when I was probably 10 or 11 years old, began caddying. <laughs> That's the way I got introduced to the game of golf. <laughs> the way many of us old folk did back way back when <laughs> and i and i really loved caddying and of course when you caddy you get to play golf on mondays on caddy day exactly and uh i started playing and basically for most of my life i've kept up uh the playing part awesome and um so i know in terms of uh college education and the like you um you, Kind of electrical engineering guy, got your BS in electrical engineering from Worcester Polytechnic Institute. And then I know over, God, I guess almost 30 years, you sort of had a whole bunch of different leadership positions in a number of high-tech companies. Uh, I know you got an MBA at Harvard along the way. I'm really interested sort of how you got from that um, career to um, club benchmarking and founding it. I know you were president of Thorny Lee Golf Club, which um, I remember from my New England days. So I have a feeling that may have something to do with it. But how did you kind of go from this uh, high-tech uh, leadership career to founding this company? Yeah, well, I think you put two and two together there. And uh, I get asked the ill-fated question, 
after I was a member at Thorny Lee. I joined Thorny Lee when I was about 40, 41 in 1999, and somewhere around 2007, say eight years later, I get asked if I would like to get involved. They, someone thought I'd make a good board member, so they asked if I'd get involved. And before I could become a member of the board, they wanted me to spend some time on the, the committee, so I joined the Greens Committee. And I think it was my second Greens Committee meeting at the end of 2007, and we were discussing the budget for the upcoming season on the golf course. At the right. time, we didn't have a GM. We had what we in the industry we call a three-headed monster, the pro reports to the golf committee, super reports to the greens committee, oh, and boy. clubhouse yeah. manager reports to the house committee. So <laughs> I was in the room with five, four other committee members, five of us, and the superintendent. And two of the five got into an argument. One saying we spent too much maintaining the golf course. The other one saying we spent too little. And to me, that was very reminiscent of hundreds of discussions I had had thus far in the grill room. <laughs> and after 20 minutes of people arguing with each other, I asked a question. And the question was, hey, guys, I know you're both passionate about what you're saying, but I have no idea whether we're spending too much or too little. How do you know? One of them is a very, they're both successful business guys, but they're both very strong willed. And the answer came from one well, I got a buddy on the board of Walpole, the very similar club seven miles away as the crow flies. I said, Well, that's great. What's Walpole spend? And the answer was, I don't know. I just know it's more. And <laughs> that led me to make the comment we just had a debate for 20 minutes and this is the source of the data you guys are arguing and i'll just admit right now openly i have no idea and my guess is neither of you have an idea either and honestly i had an epiphany at that instant and the epiphany was these discussions go on all the time in private member-owned clubs and what if we just had the data in a database we could answer the question so that's what jim and i do now and we get the data from a thousand clubs across North America. We study it, and I can tell you what it means. You know how much clubs spend on golf course maintenance and why. But we didn't know that until we had the data. So that's that's how it came to be, literally. Yeah, I I, I sort of suspected it might have been that. Um, and Jim, I want to just sort of bring you in uh, to the discussion a little bit, and maybe chat with you about um, kind of uh, your journey into i know you joined a little bit later um but your sort of journey in golf and which ended up in your current position of course with ceo club benchmarking how did you first get introduced to the game uh, i got introduced through my family i'm one of uh nine children so a good irish catholic uh, family and we owned a, a department store in a little town called parchment which is a paper mill company and uh, in Michigan. My dad worked originally worked for Pennies. Okay. And as they were traveling across the country, uh, they asked him to go back to New York City and be the manager in New York City and he decided not to and, and said he was going to do his own business and planted it himself in Parchment, Michigan because the there was a store there for sale. And he bought that and then all the kids ended up working and you know we all ended up working in the store and there was a restaurant attached to it right across from the middle school which was part of this uh 
paper mill town. So I got a very good, you know, I've been working since I was old enough to pick weeds. Mm-hmm. And they all, decided they all worked together as a family unit, and we were all sports nuts. But the rule was uh, you couldn't play golf until you could pay for golf. So uh, by the time I was about 12 or 13, I said to my dad, hey, I want to learn how to play golf. And uh, we had a good, close family friend whose name was Dan Hansen, who was the assistant golf professional out at Kelmzoo Country Club. And Mm -hmm. when I say friend, he was like a brother uh, to all of us. He was the best friend of my older brother. And he said, well, if you want to do that, go out and take a lesson from Dan. You got to go take a lesson from Dan before you go out and play. Mm -hmm. So I went out and took a lesson from uh, Dan kind of fell uh, fell in love with uh, the game. I still remember that first lesson. It was uh, slow, low, and inside out as far as my golf yep. uh, swing. <laughs> and uh, uh, and then ended up, it's a long story, but ended up working for Dan up in Michigan um, and then had to work seasonally. So ended up uh, going down for Florida and my I got into the business as a uh, assistant golf professional and then worked my way up through the club management uh, sides of that. I did play uh, in college. My first love was probably baseball and basketball, mm-hmm. uh, but I uh, challenged from a height standpoint to be able to uh, contribute on that. And then I, when I graduated college, I have a chemistry degree. I worked in Chicago for uh, a printing company and the CEO of that company was, uh, I got hired partially because from a sales standpoint, I could play golf. And I told him, Hey, I, I really don't like this job. And he said, Hey, they're hiring in Michigan for assistant golf pro. I think you'd be great at that. Do you want to do that? And I said, well, yeah, where's that at? And he said, it's at the Moore's of Portage. I said, yeah, the golf pro there gave me my first lesson. Wow. So, so I called him up. I got a job there, and then the, that, that's how I got into the business. And so one of the things, so unlike, you know, Ray, who was, you know, in high tech for, you know, a long time, you were in golf earlier. Um, it's interesting to me because the more folks I've talked to uh, on our podcast, there's a lot of people who are, you know, PGA guys, you know, start as assistant pros, but they go over into the management side. Um, uh, you know, Rob Oosterhouse is someone I know you guys know, you know, as an example, but there's many, I mean, uh, that I've, I keep, I mean, Jim Richardson out here at Riviera, who's the former PGA guy. I mean, I just keep more and more. And so it sounds like that is kind of the route you did, Jim, because if I'm getting my facts right, you go down to the Gulf Coast of Florida and you kind of have two long stints at two, you know, gated community, nice private clubs. Um, I think one in Fort Myers, one in Naples. Uh, What made you kind of focus on the management side of golf? I know you had your love of the game, but how did you get over to the management side and what was that like? Um, Yeah, I, we owned in the day, back in the day, and uh, we're all old enough to remember this, the pro owned the golf shop. Right. In the, so when I was uh, working at the forest, I started as a seasonal uh, bagroom employee there mm. and then made my way up. Gary Carl, who was at Meridian Hills, was the 
golf professional at the time and Richard Gilstead uh, and Charlie Knowles. And um, they had to raise point. It was a three-headed monster at the forest also. Mm. And they were going through managers. On, you know, every year they were firing the managers. So we had a, we made a great living there. And, um, but I knew at some point that somebody would come in to that and cause uh, an issue for me. So there was a young manager named Tim Craig, who was a Purdue graduate, and I thought was terrific. And they were getting ready to get rid of him. And I'm just like, time out. This is maybe the problem isn't the managers. Maybe the problem is the board. And if you if you want, I'll become the general manager. There was I had somebody behind me that could take over the golf shop, mm-hmm. uh, Mike Scott, who you may may know who's a fairly famous golf professional mm-hmm. in there and they took me up on it and uh, I worked for the developer there. I, I, I viewed it as a long time as a long term issue. I knew that from a business standpoint I understood the business because in those days we did all the billing, all the accounts receivable, all the balance work of running the shop, which and it so it was a great training number one. And then number two, I taught full-time on the lesson tee. So it was like a focus group with the private club members. So I got to hear hear everything wrong with the club, according to the members. So it was, I I thought it was a great way to do that, to enhance my compensation, do a better job for the club, and and have a longer-term career. Uh, doing that and that, and I'm certainly glad that I that I did that yeah I can imagine it sounds like a, a great experience so and again I know you sort of got you know an MBA in real estate development and finance along the way even a PhD in hospitality administration management I mean maybe I'm just curious kind of what role did those um, degrees and education kind of play in kind of helping shape your career yeah I'm you know I'm a life long learner as Ray is also. And I think that's one of the things that we pride ourselves on. And each of those uh, areas is a combination, I think, between experience and academia and helped in my job. And I'll give you just three quick examples of that. Sure. For example, every golf professional thinks that they know how to grow grass. So I was at the club, <laughs> the golfer superintendent left so I said, yeah, we can grow. I think I can I can grow the grass with the two assistant superintendents there. It took me about three weeks to destroy the course and understand that I really didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> so there's and I think in in terms of providing uh, that's an important aspect for general managers to understand how agronomy works. You know, it's one of the biggest assets in the club. So I went back to right. school support to get that so I could talk the language of that. When I mm-hmm. got my MBA, I was working for a developer. In order to run the division, um, you had to have an MBA. So they put me back to school because I wanted to help run the hospitality division of their uh, of their businesses. So that was part of that. And then with the PhD and the surveying, I had done surveying at the club for years and years and just really loved it and wanted to learn more about it. So I went back to uh, school to really become an expert at it. 
Got it. Um, so just to kind of finish the journey to club benchmarking. So Ray and his partner found the company, I think in 2009, I think you end up joining in 2017. How did you, what led you to connect up with the club benchmarking folks and Ray and the team? Yeah. So Ray can help me out on that, but we were in what San Antonio, Ray, what year was it? Then? Was that 12 or 13? Probably 14 or 15. 14 or 15. So I saw Ray and his partner, Russ Condi, and the first time I saw him, and believe me, I worked for a group of CPAs. I always joke there were 36 CPAs in this with this developer that every Monday would tell me what I'm doing wrong and running the club for him. And I thought I was a pretty sophisticated financial person. And the first time I heard Ray talk, in about 15 minutes, it was obvious that he knew more about my club than I knew about my club from a financial standpoint. So I had the opportunity to personally meet Ray in San Antonio. I attached myself to the hip for him because he knew things that I didn't know and had an area of expertise and uh, really changed my life by doing that. It changed the way that I ran the club. And so when he had the opportunity to work together, um, you know, we got together and I, I joined the company. I knew I wanted to do one, either other development or a company that uh, I could grow and help a company grow, and that's how we that's how we got together. Got it. So let's sort of talk about the the company and and Ray. I mean, at the you touched on this a little bit a few minutes ago, but at the outset, you, the, the the sort of start of it sounds like you're gathering the data from clubs, right? So you you sort of. And that I, I'm curious because this is obviously it's very successful, but you've got to get the ball rolling. And so the more clubs you have, the more valuable the data is. Um, what was that like in sort of the early days and get it rolling? I mean, did you just go around to a whole bunch of clubs in New England? I mean, obviously, I know your geographical scope now is vast, but I mean, how did you sort of get the ball rolling? Yeah, it was, uh, it, I will put it this way, it's pleasant persistence, <laughs> but <laughs> it was, it took, we started the company on April 1st, 2009. I had the idea in 2007 in that Greens Committee meeting, but I had right. to extract myself from my other situation. Yeah. And as Jim said, I had a guy that I had done a couple of business with, businesses with and had worked with, and he was intrigued by the idea. So we started together and you know, we know enough people who belong to clubs in New England. At the beginning, before we really had any revenue, we had probably somewhere around 15 or 20 clubs I had gathered the financial data from. We wrote the software. We got it in the database. And we studied it enough to have a sense. I mean, compared to what we know now, it was scratching the surface. But we had enough to have a sense. And it's just... You know, like any, like you just said, this this business is a network effect business. The more right. participating, the more valuable for everyone, and you know, the company and the people involved, the the customers involved. So, we just literally started one club at a time. We signed up the first club. I remember which club it was is the one I grew up caddying at, <laughs> and then we signed up the second club and then the third. But I'd say after about. 12 or 13 clubs, maybe the ones that we kind of had a personal relationship. Um, we 
didn't we get stuck and we got stuck for about six to eight months. We actually, Russ and I had a conversation one night thinking, because we had other business ideas and we thought maybe this isn't going to work. Mm. And we literally made a decision, a two hour discussion. I'll never forget it. But we talked and we said, we're going to give it six more months. Mm-hmm. And in probably halfway through that six months, all of a sudden, you know, there's a number of things that happened, but we went from 12 clubs to like 50 clubs. And then we wow. were like, okay, we have a chance here. And now we have a thousand clubs. So it, the, the beginning, it's a network effect, right? It's For sure. It's an exponential curve. So at the front end, doubling your business, it takes the same amount of time, but you don't get yeah. as much impact. But on this end now, you know, we're adding pr- pretty much in, in North America. We're doing it in Australia and Europe now too. But wow, in North America, we're adding about 150 clubs a year. So wow. it's it's pretty substantial. That's right quite now. a growth rate. That's quite a growth rate. So but, maybe but, just, you know, it's, it's, I think yeah. what you do, what you've done, I'm guessing, and Jim know any all of us, anyone who's got gray hair, I'll say this in business knows <laughs> the key to success is to not give up. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. So let's talk a little bit and I know we'll get into a little bit more of the other stuff you've done. And I know with Jim coming on and there's advisory services and stuff I want to get into. But just on the on the data part of it, I'm curious about something. So uh, you're collect you collect all this data. You've got this software. So is it if I'm um, one of the one of your clubs? Are you sort of aggregating the information uh, as opposed? I'm 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 just going to throw this out. I'm assuming you don't sort of say, well, you know, the country club in Brookline has this, Thorny Lee has that. You know, that's it's all got to be. I'm sure without Catanzas has that. I'm just picking my New England courses here. So I mean, I I assume it's got to be not specific to clubs, but you must aggregate it and say. But you must, but also, I don't want to just see all hundred clubs or a thousand clubs. I want to see clubs that are similar to me. So, how do you sort of do that for your subscribers? If that yep. makes sense, it, it's a great question. And, and it, you know, probably a year in, uh, we made a big change. The, the first year, we, we, we would show data, we only show aggregated data to your point. And we call this, there's a two by two matrix aggregated, disaggregated anonymous, open. The software platform works in all four modes, meaning if you have 12 clubs and they all agree they want to share their data openly, we can flip a switch and we show bar graphs that show on any metric each of the 12 clubs. But by name. So every club, but you say by yeah, name. By name. Yeah. If they, if if they, if they agree to that, right. Yeah. yeah. But we don't do that very often at all anymore. When we first started, clubs wanted to do that. Mm. But what we we knew, but we didn't, the market didn't know. It took the market time for us to be able to educate. The value isn't in trying to figure out what the other club's doing. The value is, it turns out, in understanding what the fundamental financial and business model of a club is. This is as fragmented an industry as exists. It's about a $40 billion industry in the U.S. And the largest single club is 160 or 70 million in revenue which is well less than 1%. So it's fragmented. And, and what happens in, in in the club boardroom, which it wouldn't be hard to, uh, exp- you know, it's pretty understandable. And 
anyone who's involved in a private club, a, a member of a private club knows this, but here's the deal. The typical club board has 11 people on it. Right. And pretty much every man and woman in that room to a T is a type A personality. Right. Pretty much every one of them has had some reasonable success or more than reasonable success in business. And I find over time that they fall into one of two buckets. They're in a bucket like, say, Jim and I are, where I'm sitting in the Greens Committee meeting when that debate's going on, thinking to myself, how do these guys know? I have no idea. I'm not, I, I, I didn't even participate in it because I couldn't add value because I didn't have any data. I'm right. not overly confident in my opinion. If you give me the data, I'll be confident. But, right. but then the other half of people in the boardroom are in a different bucket. And that bucket sort of is, you know, being very frank, they know the answer to the question before the question's asked. Right. And, and, <laughs> and there's a tension in the boardroom of the typical club because there's people saying stuff. I've sat in, I've been in over 800 boards now in front of the board. Wow. wow. Right. And, and, you know, people say stuff to me and I'm like, no, I'm sorry. That's not correct. <laughs> in, in the, but they're adamant in their opinion. They're just yeah. like, when the data doesn't, doesn't conform to their opinion, this is what happens. The data must be wrong. Right. <laughs> right. You know, in other words, it's not my opinion's incorrect. It's your data's incorrect. I'm like, well, this is the data from a thousand clubs. Do you think we're faking it or making it up? Well, I'm not saying you're cheating, but it just can't be right. As opposed to saying maybe my, then there's the other type of board member. They go, thank you so much for that data. I have a completely different view. I misunderstood. I thought that, you know, let's use the biggest example. I thought food and beverage profit or loss was a critical issue in clubs. Now you've shown me that it isn't, <laughs> you know, so that right there goes back to the way we present data, that the data doesn't give you the answer. The data provides the, the strategic context to make better decisions. And it will give a an, an, an individual club, it'll give them some sense. We know what the key success factors are, and it'll give them a very clear sense of where they fall in that spectrum on the key success factors, if that makes sense. It, it, it does. This is so interesting. I'm, you know, full disclosure, I'm on the board at Brentwood Country Club, so... Um, I'm um, just chuckling uh, at your app descriptions, but um, you know, so I, I mean, this is interesting to me because I'm one of the things I'm trying to understand. You're kind of touching on it is there's all the data, but you go and sort of meet with clubs or present. It sounds oh, yeah. like you're sort of not just saying here's your software, but you go and talk with them. It sounds like uh, about you know how to digest this and what it means for them. It sounds like. 100%. It's a, it's a hands-on value add in that regard, you know, because we, Jim and I, 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 I use this analogy a lot in the boardroom of clubs we deal with. It's kind of like our benchmarking is an MRI of the club. It, and it literally does show, it shows just like an MRI would, it shows where things are okay and where there's problems. And our job to bring the data to life is, is to we I say we have to be like a doctor. We have to tell you what the MRI says, but we have to do it with a good bedside manner. 
You know, we're not going to run into the club and tell the club that your club is on fire. You're in real trouble. But we're going to show them the data. And if someone asks us, hey, how are we doing? We're going to have to say nicely, you got a lot of work to do. You know, just like the doctor might have to tell you bad news with an MRI. And sometimes it's good news. So it's a, there's a lot of, uh, to Jim's earlier point about lifelong learning, one of the things that amazes me about what we've done or what I've learned is I kind of always assumed that to make money and have business success, you kind of had to be logical and objective. But I've come to realize there's no clue. There's not true. You, you don't have to be logical and you don't have to be objective. <laughs> you might be better off if you are, <laughs> but you can make a lot of money and be very subjective and very irrational. And it happens all the time. And you see these folks in boardrooms of private clubs, frankly, and, and I'd say this, not everyone is meant to be a director in a private club board. Some people are good at it. Some people aren't. The person who's the autocrat, who needs to be the yeah. hero, who needs to know the answer, not so good because it's as purely a democratic undertaking as exists. And it, it's it's got to be a little bit more, hey, I'm a team player. I'm objective. I'm, I, I can see the big picture. I don't know the answer if I don't understand it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I, without at the risk of, you know, I don't want to overstate this, but there are a lot of people who have been in this industry a long time who say that this data has changed the industry. It's been the most important thing that's happened in the I'm last sure. 30 or 40 years. I'm sure. Well, and it's it, 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 provide yeah. insight. That's all it does. It just it just allows people to be more confident in what they what their analysis is and what their decisions are. And and I'm sure you know it's it's interesting. One of the things that's sort of going through my head. I was at um, Latham and Watkins for 35 years and was involved in management at the law firm. And it's it the reason I bring that up is because. Law, big law firms was another area that there was never any data. Um, you know, there was no sharing. And one of the things a fellow named Steve Brill, when he formed the American Lawyer magazine 35 years ago, and he started soliciting financial data from all the law firms. And now all of a sudden, you know, every year they and they still do, you know, the American Lawyer publishes Lots, not just profits, but, you know, revenues, number of headcount, you know, all this data and everyone sees it um, by law firm. I mean, you know, they submit it and and um, and Citicorp does the same thing, more like what you guys do, aggregating it and everything. But anyways, I bring it all up because it's changed the law firm industry. It's sort of created, among other things, like a free agent economy where, well, you know, gee, I mean, this firm here, look what they're doing. I mean, why am I still at this firm kind of thing? So I can only imagine, I'm sure it is the case in something like the club industry that was bereft of data. And when you were sitting there in the Thornton Lee, you know, golf committee meeting, now there's all this data that you guys provide. It can only imagine the changes impact it has. I'm, one thing I'm sort of curious about, you touched on a little bit, you mentioned F&B and, you know, or Jim and Ray, either one of you, I mean, can you sort of articulate, are there common mistakes that you see clubs make, or is it just so all over the place that it kind of varies club by club? But I mean, with all the clubs you guys see, I'm just curious if you can stitch together any kind of commonalities that you see um, in terms of um, things clubs do that they could do better. Yeah, Go ahead, I'll, uh, let me, 
Yeah, I'll take a crack at that. Just building on what Ray said uh, before also, Larry, is that we're in a governance structure where that a third of the board changes every year in right. most clubs. So at the end of three years, you potentially have a brand new board. And one of the things that we say, and there's terms where you can run, you know, a couple terms, but, you know, at the end of five or six years, let's say, you're guaranteed of having a brand new board. And we say, would any other business in the country, would anybody else run that way? And would you do that intentionally? And the answer is no, you would never do right. that intentionally because you don't have any continuity in corporate America, the board members are on the boards for decades, in some cases, you know, more than 10 years, and they outlast the C-suite, the CEOs, the general managers of their organization. In the club business, it's the exact opposite. So if you have, a, so therefore, as a result of that, without data, you have these nine to 11 people that come in to the boardroom that have probably not run a not-for-profit country club before. Right. So one big mistakes that we see is that the, the training and the orientation on the board side does not match the amount of turn that happens on the board side to do that. And how could you possibly understand your own club if you don't understand the industry right. and what the business model of the industry is, that's that I think I think is starts with it. The from a financial point of view, the country club world or the majority of private clubs are not for profit. So therefore, if you're not for profit, the income statement is not a financial driver. When we say that to the boards, we have to duck. Because the majority of the board members are in there and they have businesses that are trying to drive profitability. But in the club business, we're not trying to drive profitability. We're trying to drive membership value and membership satisfaction. So that education is critical in terms of that. The second uh, element that we really focus on is a financial, which is the net worth of the club and the growth of the club. In any business, you have to grow, including not-for-profits. So part of that growth, one of the financial metrics that we really focus on is the compound annual growth rate, or is the club growing every year in terms of the membership equity number? And we very quickly, the clubs that are really successful are growing that membership equity number on a year-by-year -year basis. The clubs that aren't successful it's either flat or declining. And many times when we go into the boards, and if I ask you, for example, at your club, do you know what your net worth is? Do you know what your compound annual growth rate is? And the majority of the board of directors members don't know the answer to that. Right. But if I asked a law firm what your growth was, and you own that law firm, I can promise you yes. that you would know the answer to that. And the reason that that's, so important is because in a not-for-profit business, the growth money comes from that growth capital. And with the downturn in 2009, 10, 11, the amount of investment in the clubs has been stunning. 
to that, and all that money is being generated on the balance sheet side, on the capital ledger side. So the clubs that win are the clubs that have a great capital engine that can reinvest in those facilities. On the balance sheet of a typical club, on the asset side, the net property plant and equipment represents 80% of the assets in any club. So if if you're on the board of the club, guess what business that you're in? You're in the net property plant and equipment end of that. So really what, what we say the biggest mistake is that you have to understand the business. You have to understand the business model and you have to understand where you're competing in the world on that. And it starts with membership value and membership satisfaction and membership loyalty on the operating statement side, which is driven by the dues, but it's not a financial driver. It's, a, it's an experience driver. The clubs that satisfy their members are great clubs. And then on the balance sheet side, you got to win the capital. You got to get that capital growth. You got to have great facilities. You got to keep them up to date. And then you got to be innovative. You got to you got to have the great casual dining. You got to be a fitness. You got to constantly invest in the golf course. You got to be great at food and beverage. And your facilities got to be representative of what people want in the world today. And that's those are really the challenges that we have in the industry. Yeah, that that that's that's well said. I'm I'm curious. You talked about. The governance structure or the board structure, and you know, you're you're, you're spot on, of course, in terms of the rotation out um, of board directors. Um, you sort of, uh, and I know part of your business has evolved. You know, you've got an advisory element. You know, that's part of the whole uh, services suite that you're offering to your clients. Do you kind of have a sense of kind of a, a best practice for governance structure? Do you get into that with folks? And um, just curious kind of what your thoughts are on that. You know, we actually formed an alliance with two firms that we work closely with over the years, Copland Keebler and Wallace, which is the largest recruiting a, uh, firm in the club industry. And they work very intimately with with uh, boards and committees and governance. And then with the McMahon group, uh, and they work on, to Jim's earlier point, but they work, they're an architecture firm as their legacy. And they work on, you know, master campus plans, facilities plans. So we actually formed with those two firms, what we call a club leadership alliance. Mm. It's a standalone company. And its mission is to transform governance in the private club industry so that if generally speaking eight out of ten club boards are very operationally oriented yeah, right and not strategic the issues that are discussed are tactical they're short-term or, or historical you know what happened last weekend the greens were too right, slow right. the hamburgers right. were too cold right whatever. exactly <laughs> and there's not a lot of strategic, forward-looking thinking. And we're trying to transform governance from an operational activity to a strategic, forward-looking activity, to Jim's point, because we know that successful clubs are constantly investing for the future and, and envisioning a future that is evolved from where they are. I love my club. I'm a golf nut. My club was founded in 1900. 
effectively it had six holes originally but with 18 holes of golf in a clubhouse it's 124 years later and we still have 18 holes of golf in a clubhouse we never evolve but other <laughs> clubs have yeah you know even augusta national when it was founded there was no fitness center at augusta national there's a hell of a fitness center at augusta national now Right. So yeah, evolution yeah, totally. is necessary in law firms. It's necessary in every industry. And boards of clubs need to get that in their mind that we're not here to govern for today. We're here to make sure the club is successful in the future. No, oh, totally, totally agree. And and um I mean it's just so interesting listening to this because we just, you know, at Brentwood went through a kind of similar uh, we're in the process, I guess I would say, of a similar evolution in our structure of going from less operational and more strategic. And of course, that requires hiring as a GM, someone who's more of a CEO GM to really kind of be operational, which we've done. And um, so I totally hear you and I totally agree. And, and, you know, to Jim's earlier point, I mean, the board is coming and going, but you want someone who's a CEO who's not only has more of a continuity, but actually unlike me as a board member, knows the club industry, knows how to run a club. Um, so I, I totally agree. I mean, that's great that you guys formed that, that alliance. Um, what, you know, I, I you, you've touched on this a little bit, but I'm sort of, you know, curious, um, uh, what um, what trends have you sort of seen? I mean, maybe governance is one of them we just talked about, but what sort of trends have you seen in recent years for clubs and and kind of where do you see the industry going over the next five, 10 years? Yeah, I think that, you know, there's a multiple trends. The biggest trend in the industry, I think, is towards the family unit and towards the amenities that support the uh, families. In 2009, 10, and 11, when the market crashed, that was a really tough time for clubs and clubs had to reinvent themselves. In the days of the husband going to the golf course on Saturday morning, saying goodbye to his wife, say, have a great time with the kids this morning, and I'll see you Sunday night after I get done playing golf. I'm going to play some cards with the guys, have dinner, have some cigars, and check in on Saturday, and then go back to the club on Sunday. Those days are over right. in terms of that. So the big the big three areas that we've seen that clubs have really invested in as a result of the demographic change. And the industry did a fantastic job of changing that. They've invested in casual dining and uh, and in the whole fitness and wellness uh, aspect of that, resort-style pools. And those three things in country clubs are the, are the biggest changes in the trends that we that we see the second big trend, I would say, is with COVID. Um, I've asked, I have yet to have somebody raise their hand that thought COVID was going to be a great thing for the club industry. But COVID, you know, and and we're all one degree freedom. Of COVID was a terrible thing for the country. We all have lost people. My mom, we lost because of COVID. So I say That's this right. respectfully in terms of, but for the industry. Everything that's great about clubs, security, um, cleanliness, you know, the takeout services, the golf outside, having a place for the kids to be able to go in the pool, 
in a safe environment. All those things change the industry. We would have been, for the majority in 2018-19, going in front of the clubs and saying, hey, you got to watch out. The next generation of members, Generation X, is 28% smaller than the boomers, and we're going to have a problem because we don't, the, the next group of members to join clubs is 28% smaller. COVID speeded up people joining clubs and the millennials coming into clubs. And many of the country clubs benefited from that. Not so much of the city clubs in terms of that, because anybody that had hotels and restaurants dependent on that had a hard time working through that. But clubs with golf, from a trend standpoint, it was a huge uh, boost to that from a trend standpoint. We're reverting back towards the mean. We're going to see that as we revert back, but almost 60% of the clubs today with golf have a waiting list. Right. Whereas five, six, seven years ago, it was under 20%. So it's been transformational uh, in the clubs. And then I think as we look forward, the next five or six years, we're real excited about the club business. Um, and we, we think clubs are in a great shape, not only because of the demographics and the family demographics, and as clubs have shifted from an amenity standpoint to match those demographics, but we've also had a reduction in the number of clubs. We've gone from 5,000 private clubs uh, with golf to down to about 3,500. So we've had a realignment in terms of the market on the private side. So we're going to see clubs starting to build clubs again. We're seeing that in Florida. There's eight or nine development clubs going and Florida, there's some in Georgia on the East Coast going, and we're going to see the developers get going again. That's all really helpful. Yeah, go ahead, Ray. Do you want to say something? Or... Yeah, I was just going to say that it was that the, as Jim said, everything's right spot on. That the the interesting thing is that a portion of the clubs, I'm going to say 35 percent, when they hear what Jim just said. They have a visceral reaction in the boardroom, like not here, no, never, no. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, to be frank, it's a bunch of old white guys saying yeah. no. Yeah. And, and they're just stuck. These clubs are stuck. We go into clubs regularly. It's literally like walking on a 1980s TV set. The furniture <laughs> in the grill room, what, what the clubhouse looks like, the way the people, everything. It's just literally stuck in time. Time hasn't affected these clubs. It's a third of the industry. And, and they have to, and then you got a third that are aggressively evolving, and you got a third that are kind of in the middle. And and there's this mentality shift that's got to occur. One of the biggest tensions, and Jim with his PhD and his research, and the, now the work we've done with so many clubs that he built when he was doing his PhD. To a club, in every single club, and I mean that literally, from a data standpoint, the data, when you do membership surveys, shows conflict between the older, more tenured members and the younger, newer members. The older, more tenured members are like, don't ask me for any more money and don't do a damn thing, I'm happy. Right. And the younger, less tenured members, or newer members, are like, what are we doing here? We got to get this place to be fun. We got to move it forward we gotta put in a splash pad we gotta put in a rock climbing wall we gotta make you know we need more stuff 
And that tension exists, Jim, right? In every situation. And yeah, so. in, in what we know from the data, the data can't be clearer, is that clubs have to respond to that evolution in society. And if they don't, they become irrelevant. Yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. Um, do you sort of see um, with equity clubs, do you see any trends in terms of structure? Like, I mean, one of the things to be candid, I've seen at some of our clubs, you know, we've got about a half dozen clubs here on the west side of L.A., you know, uh, and and there's sort of been a lot of chatter about altering the equity structure and making the non-equity part of it a little bit bigger, um, if you will. Um, I mean, they're all still obviously private equity clubs, but you you guys know what I'm saying. I'm curious if you yep. if you see that kind of um, financial aspect, any trends in that regard or or not? Huge trends. It's the the, the equity. You know, first off, equity, just generically, not to your point, but yeah. it's kind of like a misused term across the yes. industry. Yeah, that's true. And and you 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 got it because you just used it two different ways. Equity <laughs> describing ownership, meaning member owned or not. Right. But it also, to your point, a question, it could mean, do I have equity in my initiation fee? Right, exactly. And the trend in the industry is clubs are running away from equity in initiation fees. It was a flawed model. The pin, the uh, meltdown that Jim speaks of made it clear it was a flawed model. And most clubs are moving away from having equity in the initiation fee. So I think right now it's about two thirds of clubs. When you write the check, it's gone. You have yeah. no equity and it's never coming back. One third, there's some equity and it could vary anywhere from 10% to 90%. I think the median right now is about 40% of the equity would go to the member and 60% would go to the club of the one third that have it. But that one third is diminishing every day. We advise clubs all, all day long to just get rid of it by not going back and trying to change what people have already done. Although some clubs that's necessary, but just by saying starting tomorrow, if you join the club, they just make a vote. The new members don't have any equity, and that's that. And then everyone's coming in knowing they don't. That right. That, that yeah. equity thing gets it causes this confusion between, you know, am I in this club to make money off of the check I wrote, or am I in here as a steward for the club's future history? There's it's a conflicting, there's a confliction there that is not easily resolved. And and yeah, I to yeah. go ahead, Jim. Yeah, there's a story there too, Larry, about why yeah. that is. Please. Is that, you know, uh, I would say, you know, I, I was sitting in my office in 2015 or 16 at a big property at a 54 hole uh, massive Florida property saying, how much capital do I need? How much replacement capital do I need? How much do I need for aspirational capital? And the and the and nobody could give me that answer in terms of the data in terms of a data answer. We didn't know how much we needed to have in reserves. There weren't any metrics on that. People didn't under, understand that. Well, we since have learned from that that there is a way to identify how much capital that you actually need, and it starts with the capital reserve study of being able to identify those which is really an asset management 
uh, uh, software and platform that you can put all of your data in and understand what your replacement value is, when you're going to replace it, and how much that is going to cost. And when clubs started doing that and started doing their capital performance going forward, guess what they found out? They found out that they weren't generating enough capital right. to keep up with what they had. And if they wanted, God forbid, they wanted to put in a new resort-style pool, that they had to create more capital to do that. So during the downturn, that 09-010 downturn, clubs lowered their initiation fee and lowered the um, refundability, and in many times took it right away. And at that point, clubs had to add a component to that, which was the capital dues component to that. But the reason that there's less refundability is we know today it's not a purchase, a significant purchase decision. We know that from a data standpoint, people aren't joining clubs because of the amount of money that they get back. That's not what you're thinking about the first day you join that club. So therefore, it's not a purchase decision, and the clubs need that money to capitalize that 80% net property plan and equipment on the balance sheet. And it's transformed the industry because, because of that, that, that capital income, that growth income is very important. And to raise point, we, we think with these clubs either not having a waiting list or getting to a waiting list, that the next big trend in clubs is that they're faced with this capital investment where they've invested money but if they have a waiting list and they're not going to have the terms or they don't have that membership growth, they're not going to generate the capital to keep up with their future needs. And we can predict with 100% certainty what will happen in those cases. And that is that you have to have an assessment to catch up. The only reason that there's assessments in most cases in the private club world is because of bad capital planning. Yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense, and um, yeah, it's 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 so interesting because we're as you would suspect, you know, as you think about large capital projects, these are all the kind of things that go through our head, and I'm sure heads at, at a lot of clubs. Um, guys, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we've been on for a while. This has been so fantastic, and I believe, according to our CFO, we're a client, or we're about to be a client, or you so. know when you. When you mentioned uh, when you mentioned Brentwood, Larry, I, I actually kind of came to that conclusion. Yeah, so so I, I you know, and I'm I'm on the I'm on the board. I'm secretary of the club, and so I'm I'm hopeful at some point in the near future we'll be talking with you guys. Um, so, uh, but this has been really fantastic, and um, really, it's not surprising listening to you guys why you guys have had such a huge impact um in the industry and um you know it's uh it's really it's awesome what you guys have achieved and uh continue to achieve so um thank you guys so much for making the time really educational as i knew it would be and um as i say hopefully one of these days uh whether it's by zoom or getting you guys uh on a plane out to la we'll be seeing you both so soon but thanks so much guys really appreciate it thank you larry thanks very much